listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, So today is the last Sunday of Epiphany, and throughout this series, we've been talking about the concept of Jesus being the revelation of God, being the light of God. And so, uh, fittingly, the last Sunday of Epiphany is Transfiguration Sunday. It's the story of Jesus being transfigured in the glory of God. And uh, when you really get down to it, this idea of God's revelation is really kind of the whole point of all of this. It's really kind of the, the story. It's our story. It's the story of Scripture. It's the story of the church. Uh, if I could sum it up uh, in, in kind of one uh, thesis, it would be that our story is that of, uh, it's an account of God's self-disclosure to humanity. That's what, that's what the Bible is. I, I remember uh, Robbie preaching a sermon once where he says uh, kind of our story, the story of our faith is, is like a play in three acts. And act, act one is kind of creation and and the fall and exodus and Israel. And then act two is Jesus and the church. And then act three is the new heaven and the new earth. And that we're kind of in act two, scene five. Do you remember that? Does anyone remember that? It was from the Ancient Future series. It's a great podcast if you want to go look on that. But I I think kind of if I were to give the thumbnail, like the Netflix synopsis that you'd read under our story, it'd be an account of God's self-disclosure to humanity. And like any good story, there's kind of a narrative arc to it, right? There's a conflict, there's rising action, and there's a climax. And I think in a lot of ways, the transfiguration account in the story of Jesus, certainly, but I think in our whole kind of meta story is the beginning of that climax. So let's let's go ahead and take a look at that passage real quick. This is uh, from Luke chapter um, 9. And it says, now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, or some translations say once they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. So let's unpack this scene a little bit, right? We have Jesus and a few of his disciples on the side of a mountain to pray. Uh, I know that we don't have very many mountains in Florida, uh, so I don't know how many of you have very much experience with this, but there is something very kind of special about being up high. There's a, something happens to us psychologically where we feel like we kind of have, I don't know, a perspective or a nearness or something, and, and that kind of happens throughout Scripture. I mean, this, this mirrors a few instances specifically with, with Moses and Elijah. Now, it seems like Moses and Elijah here in this story kind of seem um, passive, like they don't really say anything. They don't do anything. They're just kind of part of the scenery. But their presence is very, very profound. It would be particularly profound to a Jewish audience. So uh, let's, let's look at that a little bit. Most, 
Moses and Elijah occupied a special place in the religious psyche of Israel. Moses and Elijah were not merely prophets. They were the prophets. They were kind of the revelators of God's word. Uh, Moses hand-delivered the law, the Torah. This was the cornerstone of the Jewish faith, kind of the the highest text in the Jewish uh, scripture. And Elijah was so highly regarded that when Jesus and John the Baptist were coming up, both of them were suspected of being Elijah returned. So when Jews would refer to Scripture, they would often kind of shorthand it because they, they didn't have a Bible like we do. Like we have a canon that's been assembled and put together. They, just, they had Scriptures that were kind of, you know, they didn't have it all together at once. So kind of a shorthand they would use for Bible was, uh, for their Scripture was the Law and the Prophets. They would refer to Scripture as the Law and the Prophets. So having Moses and Elijah here were specifically, like they, to have them there, they were like the living embodiment of Jewish scripture. They were kind of the avatars of the Jewish Bible. So Moses and Elijah, when you hear Moses and Elijah, think scripture, because that's, that's kind of who they represent here in this story and kind of in the mind of, of a first century Jew. And then secondly, and more specifically, to speak of Moses and Elijah in this setting on top of a mountain encountering God kind of evokes specific instances in their life. So let's look at Exodus 34, 29 through 35, which is also part of our lectionary text today. And this is the story of Moses delivering the law to Israel. Moses came down from Mount Sinai as he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of covenant in his hand. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking to God. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining and they were afraid to come near him. So here we kind of have a little bit of a mirroring of the transfiguration story. You have Moses meets God. His face is shining. He has an epiphany on the mountain. He has a theophany. He meets God, and we get the same kind of phenomenon where his face is somehow shining with God's glory. And Moses wears a veil over his face in order to conceal the radiance from the people who were afraid of it. Remember the veil, because that's going to come back later. Foreshadowing. Uh, Let's also look at a passage from Elijah's life. We're on that same mountain, Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. Uh, he meets God 600 years later after Moses did. And that passage says, He said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now there was a great wind so strong that it was splitting mountains and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. There again, covering his face. There's kind of a theme here. And he stood at the entrance of the cave. Then there came a voice to him that said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And at this point, God goes on to kind of give Elijah instructions on how to bring the Israelites back into fold. They were worshiping Baals, and and Elijah was going to kind of bring them back to worship of the true God. And uh, so kind of the point is that both of these people have an encounter with God on the same mountainside. And so to the first century Jewish sensibility, this, this scene evokes very specific kind of ideas and emotions. So in this scene, Peter is the first to speak when he sees them. The passage says, just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Or some translations say he he kind of blurted that out without thinking. Uh, In either case, Luke wants us to know that whatever Peter said here, it was wrong. 
he kind of he stepped in it. He kind of said the wrong thing. He, he misread the situation or kind of misinterpreted it because Luke kind of makes that very clear. And I, I've heard a lot of sermons about kind of what about Peter's suggestion was wrong. And I, I, I think they're all good, and I don't want to say that mine is any different or better. Uh, but I think that what happens next is kind of a clue to let us know what Peter did wrong. So let's keep reading. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. I think that Peter's misunderstanding, his misreading of this situation was that he kind of came to, the translation says that they were either kind of like half asleep or they were asleep and then they woke up. And when he kind of realized what he was seeing, he wrongly considered this to be a sign of their equality. Like he saw Jesus and Moses and Elijah and they were kind of all shining. There's a lot of light. And he kind of goes, oh man, he kind of blurts out, God, let's, put a, let's make these memorial tabernacles. Let's make a housing for the three of you to be here. He, he sees this tableau as being kind of a, a sign that Jesus is somehow merely a successor to Elijah and to Moses. And so when the cloud falls and the voice speaks, God is correcting Peter directly. He says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Moses is gone, Elijah is gone, and Jesus is found alone. As meaningful as their presence is, their vanishment is all the more profound. And I hope it's not lost on us what a profound significance this scene would have held in the mind of a first century audience to demonstrate so vividly that Jesus is exalted over Moses and Elijah, which is to say Jesus is exalted over the law and the prophets, which is to say Jesus is exalted over Scripture. I likewise hope that it is not lost on us what a profound significance this has for us today because I believe sometimes we make Peter's mistake too. I think that we often tacitly equate the authority of Scripture with the authority of Jesus. We put them on, evil, on, on equal grounds. And it's clear throughout the Gospel accounts in the New Testament that this is not the case. In Jesus' lifetime, he was engaged in a perennial struggle to demonstrate his authority over Scripture. When the Pharisees tried to take Jesus to task, they would use Scripture. When Satan tried to tempt Jesus, he used Scripture. I mean, think about that for a second. If Satan's using Scripture to tempt Jesus, it follows then that there is a way of reading the Bible diabolically, like satanic reading of Scripture. I mean, think about that for a second. Jesus walked around saying things like, You have heard it X, but I tell you Y. And all the while, Jesus recontextualized, expanded, flipped, reexamined, and sometimes even corrected Scripture. And he can do that because Jesus is God. Jesus stands above the Word with a lowercase w because he is the Word, uppercase w. He is the divine incarnation of the Word of God. He is the Logos made flesh. Now, at this point, I think it may be important for me to make a few disclaimers before I proceed, because in my experience, anytime you kind of approach the subject of scriptural authority, people get a little, people get a little itchy. So everyone take a deep breath. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, I am not seeking to challenge the authority of Scripture. I am not challenging the divine inspiration of the Bible. And I am not saying that we should in any way abandon or lessen or modulate our study of or affection for Scripture. What I'm saying is that the Bible, and more specifically and more importantly, the way that we read the Bible must, like all things, bow to Jesus. Amen? So what does that look like? We have to learn to read the Bible with Jesus. So let's take a look at what that might look like. I'm going to give you a few examples. Uh, This one's from a few weeks ago. Robbie preached a message from Luke 4, where Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah. Do you all remember this scene? Jesus kind of stands up in the synagogue. He's returning home. So this is kind of early on in in Jesus' ministry. And Jesus has been kind of traveling all over, making a name for himself. He's making a little bit of a stir. You know, there's murmurings like, maybe this guy... Maybe this guy could be it. Maybe he could be the Messiah. This might be, this might be it. This might be the one to come and deliver us. And so Jesus has kind of been traveling as an itinerant rabbi and making a name for himself, but he hasn't come home. And now this is his, this is his homecoming leg of his tour. He's, he's coming home to a synagogue. And so I'd imagine, I can easily imagine the synagogue kind of being packed out with everyone who knows him and, and that he knows them by name. This is kind of his... This is kind of like me here. Like, I, I know you all. You all know me. This is, this is my home. You know, this is Jesus' home. And Luke really kind of ramps up the drama in this, in this passage, too. Uh, so he uh, gets handed the, prof- the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So Jesus kind of, he gets the scroll from the attendant. And he opens it up. And it's a scroll, so you can't, like, turn. He's got to kind of roll it. You know, right to left, so he gets up in front of everyone. It's a hushed crowd, kind of like y'all are. No, no judgment. Hey. He's rolling it right to left, because that's how they read. So it would be like this, I guess. And he finds what he's looking for. He finds Isaiah 61. He didn't have chapter and verse that, had, that gets added later, but so he has to kind of visually look for what he's looking for. It's just kind of, the air is electric. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he went and he sat down. It says the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is telling people kind of that the the rumors, the murmurings, everyone's like, oh, could this be be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? Jesus is saying, yeah, it's me. And everyone's just watching him. But here's the interesting thing here. Jesus did something interesting in reading Isaiah. He edited it. He, He left something out part of the original text. He kind of, in mid-sentence, omitted a line of scripture. So let's take a look at the passage from Isaiah. If we were to have the Isaiah scroll, we'd open it up, and we'd look at it here. It's Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus doesn't read that last line. He stops. And you better believe everyone in the room knows this passage. I mean, they're, 
You, you have Roman-occupied Israel. This is very apropos to their situation. You have, Jesus, you have the, the Jewish people. I mean, this was written by Isaiah during the Babylonian exile. And Isaiah is envisioning what it would look like when Messiah comes, when God finally delivers his people. And so, you know, the Babylonian exile happens and, you know, some hundreds of years go by. And here Israel is again occupied by a foreign government. They're, they're, they're controlled, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're oppressed again by a foreign group of people. And so you better believe people are reading up on their Isaiah. You better believe people are holding on. You know how some people have a life verse? Like, I don't know, does, does anyone here have like a life verse, like a verse that they kind of really cherish and hold on to and like, they, you know, you, you can recite it by memory and it's just the thing that kind of gives you hope. I, I would willing to be wager that this is a life verse for a lot of people in their room. And Jesus kind of edits it. He takes off the vengeance part. And he goes on to say, but the truth is there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up in three, for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except for a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. This is, so, he's, so Jesus is saying, there were a lot of widows in Israel, but God sent Elijah to a non-Israelite widow, to a, to a Gentile widow. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian, again, a Gentile. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so they might hurl him off a cliff. Do you see what happened here? So like not, Jesus is saying, not only is God uninterested in visiting vengeance on your enemies, but all of those blessings you're waiting on, all of those promises that God has given you, they're for your enemies too. And they tried to kill him because it was too, it was too offensive to their sensibilities. They had buried their expectations in these texts so deeply that when God came along and said, no, it's actually this, they tried to push him off a cliff. They had no room for it. Come, Messiah, redeem us. Punish them. Jesus says, no. It's not like that. That's not what God's justice looks like. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote that when a human being confronts Jesus, the human being must either die or kill Jesus. Jesus was calling on his countrymen to die to their partial understanding of who God was, and they tried to kill him, and they eventually succeeded. So let's take a look at another example of what it looks like to read Scripture through the lens of Jesus. Uh, this one's going to be from, from Romans. This is written by Paul, and so Paul, among many other things, is kind of uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. His big mission, his big theological kind of uh, undertaking was the inclusion of the Gentiles into the baptism of Christianity, right? So like you have the church starting kind of among a Jewish group and then all of a sudden Gentiles are coming along and so there's this argument about, well, do they have to first become culturally Jewish in order to be accepted into the church, into the baptism, or, or can they come as they are? And Paul's making the argument, yeah, no, they can come as Gentiles, because God is the God of Gentiles, not just the God of Jews. And so he's making kind of, Romans is his big kind of uh, opus. It's his big kind of like uh, theological treatise on the subject. 
And uh, so let's take a look at that. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised, which is the Jewish people, on behalf of the truth of God, in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will confess you among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people praise him. And again, Isaiah says, says, the root of Jesse shall come, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Paul, kind of in making this argument about the inclusion of the Gentiles, he references three points in the Bible where it talks about Gentiles worshiping God or God being worshipped among the Gentiles. One's from Psalms, the second is from Deuteronomy, and the third is from Isaiah. So we've already seen kind of how Isaiah envisions ruling over the Gentiles, looks like. So let's take a look at the first two on this one. Uh, so the first citation is from Psalms. It's from Psalms 18. And it reads, Therefore I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. So let's look at the psalm where that comes from. Bear with me. This is, a, this is kind of a really long psalm, so I'm going to read through it. But this is the original context. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I struck them down so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you girded me with strength for the battle. You made my assailants, Gentiles, sink under me. You made my enemies, Gentiles, turn their backs to me. And those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine like dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the peoples, Gentiles. You made me head of the nations, Gentiles. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners, Gentiles, came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their strongholds. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued people, Gentiles, under me, who delivered me from my enemies. Indeed, you exalted me above all of my adversaries. You delivered me from the violent. For this I will confess you, Lord, among the nations, among the Gentiles. So like the original context is completely lifted. Is completely, so when he's talking about, do you see what I'm saying here? Like when he's saying, I'll praise you among the Gentiles, the original context of that psalm is the complete opposite. It's about the destruction and subjugation of the Gentiles. But Paul kind of takes this one statement and he puts it in there. Let's look at the next one. The next one's from Deuteronomy. If I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. Again, complete opposite meaning. The context that Paul is trying to use this statement, this sentiment in, is completely devoid of what we call authorial intent. Now, let me tell you, if Paul would have been in my hermeneutics class in college, when I was in Bible college, and he would have turned this in, he would have gotten like a big F, see me after class. Like, this is not, this is not what you're supposed to do when you're interpreting scripture. But Paul does it. And, and you got to know, Paul knows. 
Paul knows the original context these scriptures are given in. But he does it anyway. Why? Because he's reading the Bible through Jesus. He's reading the Bible through the lens of Jesus. And in Jesus, there is no destruction. There is no subjugation. There is salvation. Paul is, as we're called to be, ministers of the new covenant. So let's look at that. This is, uh, this is also a lectionary reading from today. It's uh, 2 Corinthians 3, a couple sections from it. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Our competence is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Since then, we have such a hope, we act with great boldness, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the old covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Only in Christ is the veil set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And this is why I'm preaching this message today. Because reading scripture apart from Jesus kills. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And only in Christ is the veil set aside. Why? Because Jesus is the word of God. And only by knowing the word, the big W word of God, the logos of God, can we hope to know the word of God, scripture. I wrote this sermon primarily for two groups of people. The first group are those like Peter, like the crowd in Capernaum, like the Pharisees who would inadvertently try to use the Bible to domesticate God. Maybe we've inadvertently tried to limit Jesus because we've also buried our expectations in texts that only to serve to reveal God partially when Jesus is the revelation, the full revelation of God. Maybe we've tried to make Jesus to submit to the Bible, but the Bible, like everything, and most importantly, the way that we read the Bible, must bow to Jesus. Maybe we've tried to use Scripture to disobey Jesus. There is a way of reading scripture that kills. I've seen it. I've felt it. I've I've lived it. So if that in any way resonates with you, if that in any way kind of lines up with anything you've experienced, I pray that the communion we're about to receive would be for us an act of submission, an act of repentance, an act of surrender, that we would submit our expectations, our reading of the text, our approach to the Bible, we would submit it to Jesus because like God said, like the voice from the cloud said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him, and Jesus stands alone. Moses is gone, Elijah is gone, Jesus stands alone. Jesus is the full revelation that scripture was pointing to. Scripture can point us to Jesus, but Jesus can teach us how to read scripture. We need need to. It's indispensable for us. The second group of people I wrote 
this message for are these. Next week, we'll make one full year since I started working at Oasis. It's been a full year. And I've made it a point to try and get to know as many of you as I can, as well as I can, uh, though not as many or as well as I would like. And I've heard a lot of your stories, and there's kind of a theme that I keep running into, and it's a story like mine. And you all are not alone. I've, I've experienced this too. A lot of us have kind of suffered the mortal wound of unregenerated biblical interpretation. You've experienced pain and abuse at the hands of people who all the while would use scripture to justify what they're doing to you. And to you, I say I'm sorry. On behalf of of Christians, uh, the church, on behalf of whoever I could be so bold to apologize for, I'm sorry that that happened. But the letter kills, but in the spirit is life. In the spirit, there is healing. And for you, I pray that this communion that we're about to take together would be that healing, would be that restoration. There's life in the spirit. And Jesus can teach us how to read the Bible because Jesus is the word. There is the possibility to know God. Not with a veil in place. Not with a mind clouded by anything. By our expectations. By our preconceptions. By the things we've been taught. By the things that we've been handed. Eyes unclouded. Faces unveiled. Jesus, we love you. We are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the revelation that you've given us, the epiphany that we have access to, the light that has shined on us. We're grateful, God. We have no hope of knowing you apart from how you reveal yourself to us, and you chose to reveal yourself fully. You chose to become flesh. You chose to become humanity and to walk among us and to teach us and to heal us and to restore us and to save us from ourselves, from our own notions of justice, of what's right and what's wrong. You've set us free because your spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Open our eyes today. Teach us to love the word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.